Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, open it to 2 Peter chapter 1. As you're finding 2 Peter chapter 1, I'm thrilled to tell you that we will be receiving the Lord's Supper this morning. For those of us that are trusting in Christ, it's been since March since we've been able to do this, and so this morning we are coming to the table, and we're going to get back in the rhythm of doing it on the first Sunday of every month, and we didn't want to wait till September. We'll do it in a couple Sundays in the first Sunday of September, but we're just going ahead and doing it now. You'll notice that it's a little different. There's these little, just for the sake of, of our public safety here in the congregation, there's these little packets that contain both the bread and the juice, and there's kind of a double flap. You need to tear off the first one, and then you'll find the bread, and then you tear off the second tab, and then you'll find the juice. And when we prepare to come to the table, uh, we will have the ushers that will direct you to the table that's in front of you, and we'll wait on one another, and it's okay if it's a bit inefficient. We're just really, really thankful that we're able to come to the Lord's table together. Well, I came to faith in a stream of the church that was very earnest and sincere and put a lot of emphasis on your effort. I think it had a biblical understanding of the fact that Jesus died for our sins and that was the only way that a person could be made right with God. But I think one of the, maybe the weaknesses of this particular stream of the church that I came to faith in was that after an acknowledgement of the grace of God and salvation, there was sometimes a moving away from the finished work of Christ to the effort, the, the work that we must do, which certainly has its emphasis, but unless it's tethered to coming back to continually what Christ has done for us, it can produce a kind of anxiety, a restlessness in a Christian soul. And years later, after I came to what I think is a better understanding of the gospel and the Christian life, I have found myself in a stream which I think understands the finished work of Christ and its implications for the Christian life better. But I've also noticed a potential error on that side as well, that we can sometimes have such uh, an elevated view of the finished work of Christ, which really it's impossible to elevate that too highly, but we can misunderstand the role of that in the Christian life as if it's all that and now there's nothing left for me to do in the Christian life. But really, the biblical picture of the Christian life is what we find in our text this morning in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. So let me read our text and then we'll get into it. And hopefully the Lord will help us understand this paradox of the Christian life better. Paul writes this in second, I'm sorry, Peter writes this. That's why it's called Peter. Peter wrote the book. <laughs> second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. 
Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we come so needy as we've already prayed and sung. I come needy. Lord, such magnificent and important things are on the line this morning in this text and our understanding of this text. You could work in any way that you so choose, but you you seem to work primarily through the gathering of your people around your word. So this is such an important hour in the life of a Christian. The gathering together of the local church around your word. So Lord, do magnificent things. Do wonderful things. Show us wonderful things in your word. And help me to be a means by which you do that for these people. And I pray it all for your glory and our good, our joy, in Jesus' name. Amen. I think understanding the paradox that I just sort of hinted at is one of the, the signs of maturity in the Christian life. A paradox is something that seems to contradict itself, but upon further investigation really proves to be true. And the Bible is full of paradoxes. In one sense, God is sovereign, but in another sense, man is responsible. God is transcendent, yet he is imminent. He is, and we see this in our text, he is all that we need, but yet, right after Peter says that Christ, as we looked at last week, he, that he is all that we need, that he's given us all that we need, he tells us in our text this morning that we need to make every effort to supplement our faith with a list of virtues that he lists that we just read. So what is it? Is it that he's given us all that we need for life and godliness? Or is it that we need to make every effort to supplement the faith that we have, which is all that we need? Well, it's both. And so this morning, I want to work through these three verses, and I want to give us a, an outline of our text. Here's just the outline, really two sentences or two half sentences. First, we're going to look at a principle of the Christian life. And secondly, we're going to look at a picture of the Christian life. First, a principle of the Christian life, this all-important principle that we must see if we are to understand this paradox that the Bible is full of. So let's look at verse 5. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. And he continues. Look at the first part of verse 5. He says, for this very reason, what reason is he referring to? And the, the, the point he's going to make is, because of this reason, now he's going to exhort us to make every effort to, to supplement our faith. So what's the reason that Peter is referring to? Well, he has just told us in the preceding verses, in verses 3 and 4. Let me read it again. Verse 3, he's told us that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So, 
What he's just told us in verse 5, for this very reason, is referring to that in verses 3 and 4, that God, by his divine power, has given us everything we need through the knowledge of Christ, who's called us to himself, to his own glory and excellence. And here's the principle that we need to see, that Peter is going to ground the logic of the Christian life on the finished work of Christ, and he's going to ground his exhortation for us to pursue more of Christ based on what Christ has done for us. So here's the all-important principle, that because of what God has done for us, he calls us to put forth the effort required for the Christian life. Another way to put this is that the indicative of the gospel comes before the imperative of the gospel. Or another way of saying it is that the gospel is the good news of what God has done for us before it is the news of what we must do for him. And friends, knowing that, seeing that pattern is the absolute essential principle that we have to understand before we understand this text. I'll say it again, that the good news of the gospel is this news of what God has done for us, not what we must do for him. That comes after. That's the imperative. The indicative is what God has done for us. That's the gospel. If you reverse that order, it becomes the duty of religion. It becomes what we must do in order for God to be pleased with us. But we can't in and of ourselves do anything unless he first does something to us. So the gospel, the principle is of the Christian life is that the good news of the gospel is the announcement of what he has done to make us alive, to enable us, that now we can do the things that he's called us to do. And to understand this balance, we need to understand the two enemies. The, think, of, think of this balance as kind of like a a road that we're walking down. On, on either side of the road are two ditches that we are prone to fall into. One ditch is, is a kind of cheap grace. The, the theological term would be antinomianism. And what does antinomian mean? It means anti-nome or against the law or against any commands that God would place on us. It's a misunderstanding of the Christian life that says, well, I've received the grace, I've prayed a prayer, it's kind of a cheap grace, and now I can just kind of do what I want to do. That's an error, that's a ditch that the Bible does not teach. The other side of the road that we're prone to fall into, though, is a kind of legalism that says, now I've got to do all these things in order for God to be pleased with me. It's kind of putting the command before the grace of the gospel. But the gospel road is a middle road that tells us that we, in fact, we sang it in a song this morning, that we are dead, dead people. We didn't sing it. Actually, Chris read it in Psalm 115. Dead people can't cry out to God. We are dead in our sins. The good news of the gospel is that God makes us alive. He calls us to himself. He awakens us. 
He takes a dead heart, he makes it alive, he gives us faith that we place in Jesus, our sins are forgiven, we're justified, we're adopted, we're brought into God's family, and now our dead hearts, which, which could not obey God, are now enabled to obey God, and Peter picks up there, and he's now exhorting us. After this gospel principle has been laid in our lives, he's exhorting us now to make every effort. And so that's the principle of the Christian life that we must see, this, this kind of beautiful gospel paradox, which seems like a contradiction, but when we understand the pattern of the New Testament, we realize it's not, that the good news of the gospel is what God has done, and now the rest of the Christian life is what we must do in response to what God has done. And so Peter continues. He says, now, to make every effort to supplement your faith. So a few caveats before we get into this picture of the Christian life where he lists these, these, quali- these, these characteristics or virtues, virtues. A few qualifications about what, what Peter is saying here. He, he's, he's telling us that the, the Christian life requires work. We must work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul writes in Philippians 2. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Maybe a helpful picture, a helpful illustration of this truth is is something that I read from Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher back in London, back in the mid-1900s. And he gave this illustration, which helped me understand this, this paradox. He said that the Christian life, it's kind of like God makes a person alive. And think of a farmer, that this farmer has been given a farm. He's been given all of the equipment. He's been given everything he needs. He's been given horses and cattle and and fences and barns and tractors and seed. He's been given it all. He's been given these very great and precious promises. He's been given no effort of his own. He He was not a farmer and he was made a farmer and he was equipped with everything that he needs to be a farmer. And now the exhortation of the Christian life, the imperative of the Christian life for the person who is not a farmer but has been made a farmer through no effort of their own is to now plow the field, put seed in the ground, harvest the crops, bale the hay, feed the cattle, repair the fence, paint the barn. That's what Peter is telling us here in our text. So a picture of the Christian life. Let's look at these these words that Peter uses here in verses 5, 6, and 7. And let's stare at them. My plan is to just do a brief meditation on each word, and then we'll conclude with some thoughts on how we work this into our life. And as we stare at these words, let me read to you just a few scriptures to, to cultivate in us hope and what these words might do in us. Listen to what, listen to what Paul says about the power of the Word of God that we're going to stare at here just word by word. He says in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, that we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is. Now listen to this. The word of God, which is at work in you believers. Friends, that's what, that, that verse, that second half of verse 13, undergirds much of the philosophy of ministry, really the base of the philosophy of ministry of this church. We, we want to saturate the life of this church with the Word of God because we think that the Word 
It works. It's alive. It's living and active, as Hebrews says. And so one of the best things, the best thing I think we can do every time we gather is not for you to hear my proverbial thoughts on what I think about this or that, but for us to look at the Scripture and for me to do the best I can to explain the Scripture to us so that we see the Word which will be at work in us as we bring our lives, as we bring our heart, as we focus on His Word. So no, friends, here's my point. is is we go through this list of words, there's going to be things that we realize that we struggle with. And my prayer is, is that the Spirit of God will work through the Word of God to soften the hearts of the people of God. One more text before we look at these words. Paul tells Timothy that in, in chapter 3, verses 15, And following that from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So that's what the Bible does. It makes us wise. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So let's look at these words that Peter lists, and let's make every effort. So he tells us, make every effort. Work hard because you've been made alive to supplement your faith, which was given to you as a sovereign gift in your salvation, with, first word here, virtue. Virtue. What does this word virtue mean? We think of it just generally as virtuous, somebody, somebody of good character. And certainly that's what it means. Another translation translates virtue as moral excellence or goodness. All those things help to capture this word. It's a Greek word that would be used in many different ways to explain anything that does its job well, like a knife that would cut well or a horse that ran well would, would, be, would be described by this word. It's anything that does its job well. Pursue a kind of goodness, excellence, a quality of your faith as you've been made alive by God. I just sort of was meditating on each of these words, and I thought about how just personally that believers should not be slackers. Believers should not be slackers as we pursue virtue or excellence or goodness. We all kind of know that person, or maybe we've, maybe we've been that person, or maybe we are that person right now, who's kind of always expecting fellow believers around them to cut them some slack because of, you know, grace, right? Grace, grace, man, come on, grace. Friends, that's cheap grace. It's laziness. It's not excellent. It's not virtuous. Peter is calling for here a pursuit of being excellent in everything that we do. Philippians 4, 8 says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And so I would just say to my own soul and maybe to anybody that needs to hear this in this room that, that because I have been made alive, because you've been made alive if you're trusting in Christ, we're called to pursue a kind of excellence in all that we do. And God he, sees, he calls us to be faithful in the small things. There's this really powerful book written a couple years ago by this Navy admirable, ad, admiral. He, he gave this speech, and I think the title of the speech was Make Your Bed. And he was exhorting these young graduates of the Naval Academy 
and the, the young graduates of the Naval Academy need lots of exhortation because they're, they're, they're in the Navy. Um, but he, that's a joke, I went to the military academy and they're our rivals. <clears throat> they beat us 15 years straight and then we beat them through, anyway, whatever. <laughs> Is that there's this kind of simplicity in just pursuing little things and doing them well. And that this is what I think this passage is calling us to. Not being lazy, not being slackers, but being virtuous. And then he says, add to your virtue knowledge. This knowledge, how do we, friends, this is clear, this is simple. We don't need a, a degree in, in theology or a deep understanding of the original languages. We just see these faithful translations and we can meditate on these words and we can glean from them and we can apply them to our lives. What is knowledge? It's just the ability to distinguish good from bad. It's, it's discernment. It's knowing the way of Christ and the way of the world and having that enlightened in your mind so that you can walk in the way of Christ. And how do you come by that knowledge? Well, we come by that knowledge through the Word and through hanging around people in the local church who are wiser than us, who give us wisdom, who help to shed light on areas where we are still not fully understanding. Hebrews chapter 5 Verse 14 says, but solid food, and I think the reference here is to the word of God, to taking in spiritual truth. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Knowledge, what I love about this passage is it, it tells us that discernment, spiritual maturity in wisdom and knowledge, takes the training of constant practice. Now, we know this in every other area of life, whether you're a musician or an athlete or an artist. We know that you have to continually get reps. You have to continually practice something. But because we misunderstand grace and we, 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 we sometimes misapply grace as God does it all, now we're just sort of free to float, we don't understand that grace of the gospel actually empowers us to work really hard at knowing more about God through, and I'm going to use this word intentionally, through the drudgery sometimes of reading the Bible even when you don't feel like it. Maybe that just blesses somebody. You're listening to somebody who's the pastor of a church whose vocation is to open up the Word of God and understand it so he can deliver it publicly. And sometimes, in fact, often, it takes effort. It takes effort. And one of the downsides of living in the most prosperous, comfortable country in the world is we program our lives to take out anything that requires effort. And that works against us in the spiritual life. That's why sometimes I think people in the third world have a kind of benefit in the spiritual disciplines. They understand grit and constant practice much more than we do because life is harder. And when they meet opposition in the Christian life, they're not a surprise or wimpy. It takes effort. And then he goes on, verse 6, he says, And add to your knowledge with self control. Self-control. You know, for some of us, this may be the most important word for us to meditate on on this text. I think we all understand if we think deeply about it, it means exactly what it says. It means a control of our desires, a superiority over our desires. The Christian life, salvation, is not 
the complete removal of sinful desires. It is the enabling of us to restrain those sinful desires. Listen to me. For the sake of greater true joy. And friends, this takes effort. You, we cannot control ourselves in moments of temptation unless we're practicing. See how this is kind of all sort of building together? Unless we're practicing a kind of excellence in the little things, and we're taking in the knowledge of the Word, which is going to lead us to a kind of ability to be self-restrained, a superiority over our desires. And the good news of the gospel is, listen to me, the good news of the gospel is, is that you are now enabled, Christ lives in you, greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And so we are enabled to fight against those desires. We're enabled to take God's side against them. I've been reading John Bunyan. I read a quote from him a couple weeks ago. I've been reading John Bunyan, the Puritan um, writer and preacher. John Bunyan, no relation to Paul Bunyan. This was John Bunyan was an English Puritan back in the 1600s. And he wrote his autobiography called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And he was highlighting the fact in his own life and the progress of his sanctification, how, and I identified with this so much, he was talking about how one of the the chief schemes of the devil in his life was when he was grappling with a sin or a temptation or some old way that he was prone to go back to is that the devil would whisper into his heart that, that, that he's gone back to this so many times, that he's given into this so many times that he's just kind of the hopeless cause. There's no, you know, this is just kind of who you are. This is, this is the most true thing about you, and so just kind of give into it. There's no hope of, con- of you ever really being able to master yourself in this situation. And he was self-diagnosing, saying that that's one of the schemes of the devil to bring a kind of hopelessness when it comes to the strength of the gospel to actually go against a pattern that you've given yourself to thousands of times before. And what Peter is saying here is that because of his very great and precious promises, because he's given you, because he's given you the farm, you can plow this field even if you have burned down this field a thousand times before. Somebody needs to hear that. And this takes effort. There will be opposition. You are in the middle of a spiritual war. But God gives you more grace. And he says, he continues in self-control with steadfastness. Another way of saying this is perseverance, endurance. And doesn't this just go with what we've just been thinking about? Self-control, mastery over my remaining residue of sinful desires, and I need earnestness. I need, I need, I need patience with myself. I need I need endurance, two steps forward, one step back. That's the nature of the Christian life. We're to be a slow, steady boil, not a bright star that burns out. This makes me think of what we've just looked at in James chapter 1. When we started our series in James before 2 Peter, we looked at verses 2 through 4. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know 
that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So consider this grand design of God that he's allowing for the testing, the struggle, the slow boil of sanctification to produce in us a kind of, a kind of anchoredness, a, a steadfastness, an endurance that is going to produce in us a kind of perfection and completeness so that we are lacking nothing. So even, think about it, zoom out for a second, even as you're battling with your ability to self-control through the power of the gospel that's producing in you a kind of slow, incomplete, meager steadfastness. Behind all of that is a gracious plan of God to produce in you more and more strength, here a little, there a little, that makes you grow so that you get to a point where you're lacking nothing. You're a whole person. That's, that's, that's the work of God in our sanctification. And he goes on and he says, steadfastness with godliness. Now we need to think more deeply about this word. It's not just general godliness. That kind of is such a broad sort of term in our language. And certainly it means, yes, godliness, piety, doing what God has commanded us to do. But it's more than just doing the right things. It's a kind of heart posture. Other translations translate this word godliness. It to the word, with the word reverence. It's an orientation of the person's heart, an orientation of life around pleasing God. And you see what, what Peter's calling us to here, this, 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 this type of life that is full of, of virtue and excellence and knowledge, self-control, self-control, steadfastness, steadfastness, godliness, a reverence to God. And then he ends in verse seven, and godliness with brotherly, affection. Now, I was reading a, a, a commentator on this verse, and he was saying that the New Testament is full of exhortations. Really, if you just took some time over a couple weeks to read through the New Testament, you would note how full it is of exhortations for Christians in local churches to love one another. And he noted, and I would say I have to agree with this, that probably the reason why that's in the Bible so much is because the Lord knows how difficult it would be for us to love one another. It's hard. Doing life in the local church is hard, and we are in a time when it is really, really difficult to be patient with one another. There are so many opinions about so many things, small things and big things, this pandemic, the politics, whether we should do this or that, what we think about this or that. And behind it all is a kind of spiritual battle where the enemy is prowling around like a lion, seeking whom he might devour. And the way he devours you is he doesn't jump out from behind a rock dressed in red with a pitchfork and horns on his head and stab you with a, with a pitchfork. He devours you by causing us to be impatient and unloving towards our brothers and sisters and causing us to detach from the church because life in the local church with these Christians who are so hard to be around is just too hard. That's how you get devoured. That's how you get taken out. That's the wiles of the enemy. Listen to what John says in 1 John 4, 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And friends, let's just admit this takes, this takes effort. This takes effort. It takes repentance. It takes forgiveness. And, and maybe we just need to pause here and somebody just needs to just do some work internally with the Lord and, and just, just ask the Lord for forgiveness for a haughty or arrogant or impatient attitude. Just right now, maybe even right now, something is bothering you about somebody in this room, and, and you are, you're just, you are, your heart is full of frustration and impatience. And dear one, that will eat your soul from the inside out. People... People are struggling. There will be a time when you are struggling. And the, the church needs to be a place that is full of brotherly affection. What, what do all these things mean? What does it mean if we're virtuous and, and full of knowledge and full of self-control and full of endurance and steadfastness and, and full of piety towards God if it doesn't actually ooze out of us to the people around us? What ends up happening is all of this good theology that we have inside of us, if it doesn't work itself out into love for one another, it ends up confusing the world and lying about the gospel. And I think, in, at least in my 15 years as the pastor of this church, the, the challenges, the, the, the attacks, the, the, the stresses on Christians' ability to love one another is more intense now than it has been in, in recent memory for me. And I think we all understand this. And he concludes with, with love, and add to your brotherly affection, love, which I think is just an amplification of this, this brotherly affection. This is the end and sum of all of our efforts of sanctification. Listen to what Paul says to first, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. He says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. So Paul's saying that the, the ultimate, the aim, the goal of our ministry is that from our faith, from our pure heart, from this sincere faith would be love that comes out of this heart full of faith. Colossians 3.14, he says that above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I mean, we're going to come to the table in just a moment, and one of the exhortations that Robert's going to read for us out of 1 Corinthians 11 is that we examine our hearts, that we wait for one another, that we love for one another. And one of the things that's going on in 1 Corinthians 11 is that the Christians in Corinth were impatient with one another. There was a kind of self-absorption. And he says, before you come to the table, deal with that, repent of that, get that out of your heart, because you don't want to come to the table in an unworthy way. In fact, he goes so far as to say, is that God is so serious about your sanctification, is that he actually is causing some of the Corinthians to be sick, and some of them are dying because of what seems to be the lack of brotherly affection that they have for one another. That's how serious he's taking it in 1 Corinthians. And that's how serious we should take it today. So before we come to the table, four brief pastoral thoughts very quickly on making every effort. One, friends, fight to partake of the regular means of grace. How, how do we make every effort? How do we do this? 
Just fight to partake of regular means of grace. Fight to take in the Bible. If you haven't read the Bible for a week or a month or six months, today is the first day of the rest of your life. Read the Bible today and pick it up tomorrow and start a Bible reading plan. Start slow. Read a proverb a day. Read a chapter of the Gospels every day. Or just decide, I'm going to read through Mark and I'm going to make it to the end and then pick another book and do it. Take in the Bible. If you need more help with just some wise ways to engage that, avail yourself of the resources around you, pastors, other Christian friends that can encourage you in that. Take in the Bible. Listen to it on your way to work. Gather together with Christians, fellowship, worship with your local church. Gathering together, prioritizing worship can be at times drudgery, but it's the way, it's the unspectacular, glorious way that God works. And one pastoral concern I have during this time of pandemic and social isolation is that I think that there is a percentage of Christians, not only around the world, but the ones that I'm responsible for in this local church that have let this pandemic become an excuse for them to not prioritize gathering with the local church. Now, hear me on this. I realize that there are some of you that are listening via live stream that have genuine and legitimate concerns, and you should stay home for your health, certainly, for a variety of reasons. But I fear, my concern is, is that there are some who it's kind of revealing a sort of spiritual apathy and laziness for you. And I wonder if, What's it going to take for you? When, there's not going to be some on switch when some government official says, okay, everybody, it's safe to come back. And my fear for some of you that are just kind of letting this sort of cause you to drift away and now you've filled the Lord's Day up with all sorts of other things is that it will cause you to be in a place where before you know it, you're, you're, you're a million miles away from where you thought you would be. Fight, fight. And hear me, I'm not talking to those of you who have legitimate health reasons to stay away and isolate still. I'm talking to those of you that have let yourself drift due to spiritual apathy. Fight to make the gathering of God's people a priority in your life. That's how you make every effort. Secondly, don't be seduced by shortcuts. Americans, I mean, sometimes I, I, I wonder, how did, how did the kingdom of God survive before the American publishing industry? You know, the latest, the new greatest Bible study, the new greatest this or that, or the new greatest author that says this, or some fancy thing. Friends, those are gifts from God sometimes. Sometimes it's horrible theology that's put out there, but sometimes it's good stuff. Don't be seduced by shortcuts. Don't be dependent on the latest, greatest new thing that comes down the pike of the latest Christian publisher or the new book. Give yourself to just the regular rhythm of the long, slow boil of taking in God's word, gathering with God's people, prayer and fellowship. Thirdly, don't be discouraged by the slowness of your growth. Friends, sin is powerful. The fall was pervasive and devastating, and God has purposes in the slowness of your sanctification. The growth, what Peter's calling us to here in 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 7, to make every effort, is a slow, steady march towards glory. And then fourthly and finally, look for evidences, not perfections, of grace. Look for evidences in your own heart to encourage you, not perfections of God's grace in your heart. The perfection of God's grace will only come in glory. And we live in an age 
when everyone sees everyone else's best foot put forward through social media, and that can become really discouraging. Give yourself grace when judging the state of your own heart. And if you see it way out of bounds with where God wants you to be, don't be overtaken with self-loathing, but turn from that and start now towards God. And make every effort. Roll up your sleeves. Paint the barn. Put the seed in the ground. Drive the tractor Plow the field, so to speak, because he's given you very great and precious promises. Make every effort. And where's Peter headed in this? Well, we'll get into it in the coming weeks. He's headed towards assurance. He says in verse 8, we'll get into this. He says, if these qualities are yours and increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to go on to say that God desires that we have assurance. So he's wanting to anchor us in this hope. And now we come to the Lord's table. And I want you to see this circle. We've been talking about making every effort. And the temptation is, remember the, the stream of the faith that I was in at the beginning. It was kind of all about what you do. And you can read verses 5 through 7, and it can all be about what now you must do when you go out of here. But as we come to the table and we hear this exhortation of Peter of what we must do, how we must make every effort, let's circle back around to verses 3 and 4 that tell us that we have obtained this faith of equal standing by the righteousness of God, not by ourselves, and that he's given us everything that we need, and he's given us precious and very great promises so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature. And so we come to the table here in just a moment, not because we've had a good week of effort making, but because we have a sufficient Savior who has given us everything we need. We come as people who are dead, who have been made farmers, and we know that our fields aren't perfect. We know that they need to be harvested. We know that the barn needs to be painted. We know that the horses need to be saddled up. We know all these things. The fences need to be repaired. But we can do these things. We can make these efforts because we've obtained a righteousness. And we come to the table, and we take the bread, and we take the cup, and we're reminded of his very great and precious promises that he's given us because of our faith in him, because he's made us alive, because of his sovereign grace, and we're enabled to come away from that table making every effort. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to pray, and then the band is going to lead us, and we're going to sing, and when you're ready, there's going to be ushers stationed in front of you, and let the ushers direct you as you're ready to come. Now, it may mean you having to move past somebody that is not yet trusting in Christ. And really, this is important for you to understand that this communion table is for believers in Jesus. It's not for you if you do not yet trust in Christ. We're really glad that you're here, but we don't want you to do this simply because everybody else is doing this. You should do this only because you are trusting in Christ yourself and you're part of the Lord's family. And the ushers will direct you, and then Robert will come and lead us to take the elements together. And remember, we'll have to peel off one layer for the bread and then the second layer for the cup, and we'll receive the elements together. Well, let's all stand together, and let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Fathers, we come now. <clears throat> help us to embrace this paradox that because of what you have done, we can make every effort to supplement our faith 
in these ways that Peter calls us. And as we are making these efforts, we are making them from the finished work of Christ that we remember when we come to this table that he has taken your wrath on the cross. He bore the punishment for our sin. That's why his body was broken. And he spilled his blood so that we might be washed anew. And so as we come to the table and we take the bread and we drink the cup, let us examine ourselves. Let us renew our commitment to walk with you so that we leave this table making every effort to glorify you in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.